Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, this is Eat Sleep Work Repeat. Welcome to our second show. Thank you for all the feedback I got on the first one. The sound production is about 18% better on this one. Thank you for all your tweets, and please leave a review and subscribe at iTunes. Good show this week. We've got an interview this week with the author of one of the most entertaining business books of the year. And also joining me in the studio is someone I've long admired and respected, one of the most respected people in UK media. Joining me is Dara Nassaf, the MD of UK Twitter. Hello. Lovely to meet you, Dara. I know you, though. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yes, uh, we work together, don't we? Yes, that's right, we do. But we're not going to be talking about uh, work or anything like that. So we've got a a good episode today. Um, I guess broadly the theme of what we're going to be discussing is the interview in the second half of the show. But uh, as as you're here, Dara, I thought it'd be be worth getting to know you. So uh, talk us through you and and where you've worked in the past. Okay, yeah, I mean, I've... I've worked in this industry for 17 years, primarily in television advertising. Well, at the beginning in television advertising and latterly four years at Twitter and almost six years at Google. What did you want to be when you grew up? Not in media, if I'm honest. I didn't know what I wanted to be. I suppose I had the whole footballer, fireman kind of thing. But I just wanted to really, I don't know, I quite enjoyed television, I enjoyed entertainment, but I never knew what I wanted to be, I still don't really. Did your mum even understand what you do? I think that's the curse of modern jobs, isn't it? When, at least footballer, fireman, your mums could understand the job you do. I think you make a good point there. You once said, uh, when we were chatting, when you watch a film, you often have people who are doctors or lawyers or maybe accountants, but they never sell media, do they? I think that's, that's the it. Thing. There's certain jobs where you can be a protagonist in a film. So, so you know, a university lecturer, a great protagonist in a film. Someone who deals with capping oil wells, great protagonist. Yeah. Someone who manages accounts queries yeah. in a credit control department, not a great protagonist. Not a great protagonist, more of a joke figure, probably, yeah. If, yeah, to, be background, background, to be true. To be true, yeah, the job isn't the main part. Yeah, so my mum... Uh, I mean, she understands the industry, so tech she gets, and she's heard of the brand, so she's very proud there, but probably couldn't explain what my primary focus is. And what was your worst... So, we, like, the, our aim in this podcast is to talk about happiness at work and work <laughs> culture. What was the what was the worst work experience that you've had? Yes, I've been very lucky... Good work at good companies, haven't yeah, you? Yeah, I've been very lucky since graduating for working for good companies. But I did some temp work, 
um, and in when I was at university and after university, and I worked for a telecom. You know, with temp work, you go to a temp agency and they tell you what to do. You know, you don't have any choice. All you say is, "How much do I get an hour?" And I think at the time it was like four pounds or four pounds fifty or something. Um, and I worked for a telecommunications company. I thought that's what does that good. even mean? Exactly. I thought that's good, isn't it? It's tech or something. Um, but it was they hired lines from B British Telecom and they sold them to old people for cheaper uh, than British Telecom paid uh, at the beginning and then they ramped the prices up. And my job was credit control. So I had to phone 85-year-old people and say, why haven't you paid? And then try to threaten them for money. That was a pretty bad job. How long did you do that? Two hours. (laughs) So, uh, yeah, I... um, How many people did you menace? Well, none, actually. Well, no, that's not true. I got the list and the, the, the woman who worked there said, you just have to phone these people up in this order. I'd phone them up. And I realised, you know, obviously you don't know their age, you just get a list of people with a name. All of them were old. Right. I mean, you could tell straight away. So I sat next to the sales team who were selling these things and I said, weird, isn't it? All the people, like the first 10 people I phoned are old. And he looked at me and went, they're all old. All our leads are old because old people buy this. They believe what you say. Right. And, and then I left. Wow. Well, I actually said to the bloke when I was leaving, that it was morally corrupt, and I left. That's it. I mean, then I noble really, of you leaving, but I was really scared. I know. I mean, it, that was noble that I left, but then I spent the next day worrying about what my mum would say. Right. Yeah. She was alright about it. To be fair, my worst job I was I used to dress up as Mr. Wimpy. I mean, it wasn't That's my worst job. That's an amazing job. That's <laughs> <laughs> better than your job. I now. used to dress up as Mr. Wimpy, <laughs> but when Mr. Wimpy, when Wimpy was sort of still like Burger King, I was five foot two till I was about seventeen, and uh, and one of the cushiest jobs <laughs> was that you would don this fiberglass costume and go out onto the streets of Birmingham, stand next to someone handing out vouchers that said you could get a quarter pound for. Did one anyone pound. hit you? No, but routinely Birmingham City fans used to roll. Me Mr. Wimpy, who had a broad-brimmed hat <laughs> that rolled him down <laughs> Corporation Street. And there was basically only about three people who could fit into the Mr. Wimpy costume, me and two young Asian girls. Right. And, uh, and yeah. quite often you'd see a, a young teenager coming into the, in oh. the building crying because right. Mr. Wimpy had been manhandled in okay. some way. My one's worse. My job is worse. <laughs> I think yours is just it shows the dark side of Britain. Yeah. Oh, maybe not Britain, of the world. Maybe. I mm. mean, I assume that happens everywhere. You know, a friend of mine worked again for a company and he said as well, when you're doing cold calling, you have likelihood of people, you profile people likely to buy. And those people are older or people they profile as less educated, which is exploitation, really. Yeah. But you've worked at some nice companies along Mm, the way. Lovely. But have they always been... uh, I'm just interested... The thing I'm interested in is it's not necessarily the companies with the, the most resource that are the most happy. Is there anything that you think successful businesses do well on culture or what the th- when were the times that you were happiest um more than the companies for me it's like 97 percent of the people so you can be a brilliant company that has great culture that pays you well that great benefits but if you work with people that don't set the right tone that defines it for me so very small companies that aren't well heard might have a great culture I mean, I, I do have to say the word culture is a difficult one for me because I don't think there's a specific definition to it. You know, when you talk about, uh, it's very intangible. And I think if you said to someone, um, Google, for example, is said to have a fantastic culture, and it does. But I think a lot of people perceive that with the benefits that come with the culture. Right. Whereas I have a friend who works for a insurance loss assessor, 
which isn't a great necessarily industry, but he loves working there right. because the boss makes sure they have fun, they can go early on a certain day, they've got flexible working, they can buy extra holiday days, stuff that actually means a lot to them. And because of that, they, they're like a family. So I, I, I think it's really defined by the people, the experience, how the leadership act or yeah, react. Because benefits, I think, have got nothing to do with culture. They don't. But I think if you say where someone with a good culture, sometimes people think, how well do companies pay? Or what's their pension? Or how many holiday days? And that's actually, that's more of a package, I think. It's just just an interesting thing that quite often when you look at what the best places to work, they'll often give this laundry list of the things they provide. And quite often there doesn't seem to be a connection between it. Mm. I've worked at some places where they gave you absolutely nothing, you know. They wouldn't even refund your bus fare to, to go and visit somewhere. Yeah. But they've been heroically fantastic places to work. Um, don't get me wrong. Like, I mean, Google, I was very lucky to work there. I loved it. Um, absolutely loved it. But my happiness was defined by the people I work with. Right. Or my lack of happiness was defined by the people I work with. Not by the broader company or Mountain View where their headquarters are or how lovely the lunch is. Of course that helps. Of course that's we're very privileged. Marie, Did you ever go to Mountain View? Yes. Can you see mountains? I, presu- I presume that, that name conjures, is it an alpine retreat? I mean, to be fair, it's interesting that no one's ever thought of that. Um, yeah, I think there are mountains there. I, it's a pretty big claim though, isn't it? When you I build mean, just, a complex to say Mountain View, I'm immediately thinking yeah, it's, a good it's point. in the midst of the Swiss Alps. I could have been in Croydon, to be fair. Okay. I was in a training room. Right, a business park. Literally that. It was, it's, it's, um, but, the, but the company owns the whole town. I mean, you know, it's a, it's a pre-existing town they've taken over, right? basically. Let's kick on and play the interview and then we'll come back and chat. So, uh, so today's interview is with Dan Lyons. Dan Lyons has written... Probably the most entertaining business book of the year, Disrupted My Misadventure in the Startup Bubble. A story of a fish out of water, the story of a lack of diversity in the promised land of tech startups. So to give a bit of context, Dan was a successful writer who, amongst other things, wrote the blog The Fake Diary of Steve Jobs. And his book tells the story of someone who didn't fit. It's a darkly amusing book, made more alarming by the fact it's true and very relatable. He lifts the lid on the dystopian elements of the 21st century working culture. It ends with his pursuit by hackers trying to break into his personal affairs. Brilliant insight, strongly recommended. I met Dan, who now has spends his time as a journalist and a screenwriter on the HBO comedy Silicon Valley, sitting next to former Twitter CEO Dick Costello, by the way. Uh, I met Dan on his recent visit to London. Yeah, I mean, just out of curiosity, and we're going to go on and talk about your experiences working in a tech company. But before we start, I, I was just fascinated to just briefly cover the, the fake Steve Jobs oh, yeah. thing. And I, I guess, you know, from my point of view, I, I remember fake Steve Jobs when it was happening. But just reading through the book and recollecting on the stories of him hanging out with Bono and <laughs> doing peyote and, and sort of <laughs> and yeah. f- fake calling res- restaurants. <laughs> how, did, how did you even come to find yourself doing that? I, I very much by accident, I really wanted to um, just learn how to blog, and I thought I, I really wanted to learn about how to about online publishing, about HTML, like literally just how to do things online. Because at, at Forbes, working in print, we were very uh, isolated from the whole production process, and even if our stories went online, we just wrote them and sent them over, and someone else took care of it. And um, and I was very curious about blogging. Blogging was this you know hot new thing, and um, 
No, and I started a whole bunch of blogs on different platforms just to see how does TypePad compare to WordPress, compare to Blogger, and no. Um, and it was really just one day I had this random uh, uh, idea of what would happen if you had a CEO uh, who was blogging but who was horrible and you couldn't stop him. Like the PR people couldn't, because you know this Robert Scoble idea of naked conversations and every CEO is going to have a blog and this will be great. And I, I remember thinking at the time, no, that would be horrible. And, and the few CEOs I've met, I think if you could, if you got them a little drunk and had them just home blogging, it would be, you'd be appalled by, you know, the kind of sociopaths you're dealing with. And so I thought, wouldn't that be funny? I used to read Private Eye a lot, and I remember they used to always do the diary of someone. And I thought, oh, a blog is kind of a diary. What if you did that? And so that's why I called it the secret diary of Steve Jobs, because it was, I think Private Eye always calls it the secret diary of John Major. Yeah. Remember those? Yeah. And they were, you know, it, it, I always thought them really funny. And uh, but I didn't intend to continue. I just thought it was uh, something to do for a few weeks, and then it, people started reading it, and um, and it kind of uh, took on a life of its own. And um, yeah, very. I sort of realized very accidentally this thing was um, taking off, and and uh, and it was a way to write about the tech industry. At first, it was sort of just a few little jokes about Steve Jobs, and then I realized, you know. Uh, what am I going to write about every day if I'm going to keep doing this? And I thought, oh, what if Steve Jobs was opining on the tech industry? So it was a way to cover the industry as a journalist and to say things that I kind of wished I could write in my Forbes articles, but I couldn't, and, but put it through the voice of Jobs. So it had to be filtered. It had to be believable that Jobs might actually think X. It wasn't too hard to imagine how he might. I think some things I got things wildly wrong. Like That's probably not how he felt. But, but yeah, so it was, it was, there was another guy at Forbes who, he and I had both had this idea to try to do a daily show of tech, like do what Jon Stewart did with politics, but about tech. But nobody would ever let us do it. But it was, yeah, it was a way to, because, you know, I mean, you've been in the tech industry for a long time. You're around it enough, you start to think, this is, there's so many absurd things about this industry, and yet the coverage is all so straight and so boring, and wouldn't it be fun to, to do that? So, yeah, that, that was the, the impetus for that. It was just yeah. a way to write about tech in a funny way, which, of course, now has become... Now there's a lot of that, but at the time, there wasn't much. Yeah. I, I, lo- I absolutely loved your book, and I, I think the, the reason why I loved it is because it's so rare that you read something that's so savage and, and sort of satirizes what you see. I mean, it, I compared it, I think, to David Edgar's The Circle. I don't know if you read that. Which is sort of quite gentle, and whereas this names the company that you worked at and satirizes them to just a, an extraordinary extent. Um, do you feel any anxiety being as honest as you are? I mean, like you, you yeah. document the troubles that you, you had at the end. Uh, oh, yeah. I, I had a lot of anxiety. In fact, I thought maybe maybe there's a novel in this. At one point, I thought um, maybe that would be the way to write it. But I have not read that Dave Eggers book. And, and a lot of people have mentioned it to me, and I know I should, and I've just been busy, but I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to read it. I, I, uh, yeah, I had a lot of anxiety writing the book because I thought, well, there might be some backlash. Obviously, there was. I mean, I ended up getting hacked, and I don't, I don't even know what happened because the company won't say, but there was this FBI investigation. It got all uh, very scary for a while. In the end, I kind of felt it, it worked better being a real story about being a nonfiction book. It actually worked being, you know, using my name and, and saying this is really what I went through. And um, so Do you want to describe sort of briefly your experience? So for, for anyone who's not read it... it yeah, the experience of a, of a writer, sort of a, a career in writing in publications like Newsweek, uh, and you find yourself in a, a tech, a, an East Coast, but a tech startup. So, it was a te- yeah, and I was a tech journalist 
for uh, a long time. And um, the, the, the actual, the thing that sort of forced my hand is I got laid off at Newsweek and so, so found myself trying to either find another journalism job or maybe cross over and, and work in tech, which is something I had thought about for a long time while I was covering tech. And I think a lot of people who cover technology companies have this fantasy of like what must be like to go behind the curtain and and just be in one of these companies. Um, I, I suppose sports writers maybe have the same fantasy of like, wouldn't it be great to play for the Red Sox? But you, you know you could never play for the Red Sox. But when you're covering Google or IBM, you realize, oh, I could maybe do something here. You know, you know, it's not impossible. And everybody there seems to be having so much more fun than you are as a journalist. You know, the, the, the uh, people in, in, especially successful tech companies. You also don't realize, I think I didn't realize as a, as a journalist, you, you don't see a lot of the really horrible failing ones because you never write about them, right? Which is actually 99% of tech companies are the ones that just completely flounder and go out of business. So the ones you're writing about are the ones that are the rocket ships that are taking off. And yeah, you know, when you visit Google as an outsider and you walk around that campus, you just think, this is, this is like Disneyland. This must be amazing to work here. You don't really feel that way walking around HP. I don't think anybody walks around HP going like, oh, wouldn't this be magical, right? <laughs> or EMC, you know. But um, anyway, so yeah, I had this fantasy. And then so I started looking for a job in tech. And I kind of thought it, it happened to be at a time, too, when tech companies were all hiring journalists to do this sort of brand journalism or corporate journalism. And I sort of thought, well, okay, it'll sort of be half a loaf. It'll still be kind of a journalist, but I'll be working for a company. A different company will be signing my paycheck, but I'll still be independent and writing whatever I want, and I'll be writing this blog about business. So, yeah, I, I went to work at a company called HubSpot, which is a very small startup pre-IPO, but, but doing well kind of company. It was growing very fast. And I thought, well, this would be fun. I'll go for the ride and see what an IPO is like from the inside as a company goes public. And, and then got in there and realized that I really didn't fit culturally. just was really bad fit. And I had overestimated my ability to adapt. I thought I could, I could do this. I got in and fairly quickly realized that wasn't going to happen, that it was just a bad fit. But I stuck it out sort of stubbornly saying, I'm going to make this work and I'm going to carve out my place here. So it just kept getting worse and worse. And that's, so the book is sort of a comedy of errors of, of, you know, a guy. I was twice the age of everyone there. That was another problem. So I had never felt old before. Suddenly I felt I was very much aware of my age in a way I'd never been before. And it just felt very different from everybody else. It was a place where there almost was zero cynicism. And I had never been in a place where really there was just a complete lack of cynicism and, yeah. and and was that did that come across there's one amazing scene that I loved where you're given the four archetypes the four personality types and you oh, and that's you, right. and, yeah. and, and the robot man or the robot man and you're asked and and you start riffing uh, I mean is it worth you describing the scene you start riffing and actually it just seems remarkably humorless as a place as much as anything is it, um, is <clears> it I think people were afraid to laugh yeah, yeah. yeah so we did this disc training which is it's sort of like Myers-Briggs and we went through this training where you get assessed you're either a D, an I, an S, or a C, and or some combination of those. Or it's a pie chart, so you might be a D with a little bit of I. And you know, it, it seems obviously kind of ridiculous and and hokey and pointless. You know, I think a, a room full of journalists either wouldn't put up with it or would really do it under duress, and would be making fun of it the whole time. So we had to go and you do an online test, and then you go show up one day in a room full of people and. You get your little packet that tells you what you are, and as if you're, you know, and you're way you're dying to know what you are, right? And um, <clears throat> and uh, we had to guess what we thought we were, and then open our packet and aha, are you, ha, ha, you know? 
And then we had to watch these videos of different personality types and see which – to learn. Like, so the, the basic premise was a D and a C might not relate very well. So it's, if, if I know you're a C and I'm a D, then we should each know what each other's are. So then I know how to talk to you and you know how to talk to me. And, and um, there was one type, I can't remember what it was, that was essentially – yeah, the robot man yeah. who would um, just do exactly what they were told, nothing more, nothing less, and um, – and so in and, and the corporate videos, they made these videos of, the, of these people talking, and they were actors, so really bad actors with a really bad script reading. And this guy gave this thing about, I do exactly what I'm told. And, like, you know, if, if you said to him, where's that report? And he said, well, you didn't tell me to give it to you. You just said to, I told you I'd have it finished by Friday. He's like, well, you know, you, anyway, so stuff like, so they went around and asked us, which one did you like the least? And I said, you know, the robot man. And, and. And they sort of said, why? And, and I said, well, I didn't like his mustache. And, and then nobody laughed, right? And it's like, you know, it's just the way he looked. And maybe it's it not really the type. Maybe it's the actor they hired and still nobody laughed. And then it kind of went on this ramp. Like I said, actually, I think if I had to work with him, I, I think I'd want to, I, I think I want to strangle him. I, I think I would literally put my hands around his throat. Like, how did you end up in this company? How did, how did this company hire a robot? And, like, you know, this is a startup. And, and the woman got more and more... Uh, ill at ease, the, sort of the woman running the, the training, and said, well, I, don't, I think I know what you mean. You, you mean that you would be frustrated and it would be difficult for you to talk to him, wouldn't it? And I said, no, no, no. I, I, I mean, literally, I would strangle him. I think I really would kill him with my bare hands. And, and still nobody left. And everybody kind of looked around like, oh, there's a crazy man in the room. And then she said, well, you know, some people in this room are C types or whatever they are, and you're not going to strangle any of us, are you? Ha, ha, ha. And I was like, no, of course I'm not going to strangle you, you know? And, and, uh, and then there was just this awkward silence, and it just got very uncomfortable, and, and uh, finally it was over. And uh, I sort of apologized afterwards, but they were kind of mad that I had sort of made fun of the whole thing. And, and, um, but yeah, I, um, that was a moment when I realized I was not, not in Kansas anymore, right? I was not right really where I belonged. And is your feeling overall then, so <clears throat> is your feeling that the, the experience you have was an environment that didn't want diversity, and, and they talked about diversity, or is... And is that because they perceive their success comes from the way they've done things to date? Yeah. What was your final... I mean, it, it's sort of, you know, stories of people doing push-ups in meeting rooms and, you know, this sort of locker room bro culture. I was yeah. just interested whether you felt like the company was trying to assimilate you and, and bring you in and... or. Experience diversity. Well, that's the other question I had. Is I, I never, I couldn't understand why they had hired me. Like, because I got there and realized everybody else was under thirty. There was, you know, really hardly anybody over the age of thirty. I was twice the age of everyone there, and there were no other people. My it was one guy in the entire company, five hundred people, and um, yeah, no, I, I, I came to think, yeah, there's this idea of culture fit that that was very big there. And they sort of said, like, we like to hire people that we'd like to go have a beer with after work. It's really important to fit in here. Like, being a fit is a big thing here. And um, I came to think that that was a euphemism for a lack of diversity. And, uh, yeah, I, I sort of went into startup land as a, as a sort of a – think of it as an ecosystem, thinking, oh, this is – you know, the modern world is going to be very progressive, very diverse, very cool, hip, and lots of different people. It's going to be great. And then I got in and found out not only were there no people my age, and that was on purpose. They were intentionally only hiring people who were very, very young. There was also a lack of diversity along uh, the line of, of, of race – and gender, gender in the sense that there were a lot of women, but none of them in top roles. But it was an incredibly white place and all of sort of one kind of white people. 
you know, and and it was very important to go along. So there wasn't much friction and dissent at all. And I think uh, that was uh, part of the problem. I, I think that happens a lot in startups, that it's very important to buy into the vision and not dissent. If you're a dissenter, you sort of get pushed out, um, which ends up uh, being a problem ultimately. I think. Yeah, because yeah, I mean, these... these the guy who carries the teddy bear around these these these, these a series of sort of odd things and, what, and nobody laughs yeah. that's the thing not only does the founder bring a teddy bear and think this is great and tell everybody why this is a great idea nobody makes fun of him that was what was funny to me was that that in any organization i've been in before i think some of us would be you know making fun of that you know is that is that a time change as like uh, because british businesses i think have uh, Humor appears to be part of the workplace, whereas the, what you, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. the painting you you create here is that a lot of really junior people who sort of first jobbers quite often, you know, yeah. someone's your manager after they've, you know, you ask what their last job was, and they're baffled it's because it's only college, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But it, that lack of humor just seems to be an extraordinary thing. I mean, what are the cultures that you've enjoyed working? What's the difference? Well, I th- but I think partly it's an American thing, right? Like right. I think honestly, like I, I uh, my best friend back home in the States is an English guy. And I, I spent enough time here and in Ireland that, you know, I think people here have, I don't think, I, I just have a hard time imagining that any of this could happen in England. Because I right, think, okay. you know, I mean, if you look at English comedies and TV shows, I mean, there's just a much deeper level of cynicism here and and um, and piss-taking, right, than, than there is. In the I think that level of earnestness and lack of cynicism is a uniquely American thing. Um, maybe not, but I think it is. And... Um, and I was always in newsrooms, which are very, very cynical places. Even, I mean, to the extent that we're, we're, journalists are very cynical about the, the outside world, because you have to be, you know, you sort of anything any PR person says to you, you immediately think is, is a lie, right? And, or any corporate person says you immediately think is, or you start trying to poke holes in it. Um, but even in our own company, like we would, at Newsweek, we were in a death spiral, right? And we'd have these meetings where they just laid off half the staff, and then the remainder of the staff would get together and, you know, the boss would get up and say, look, things are great. You know, we did just cut half the staff. Uh, there might be another cut, but it won't be more than 15%. And, uh, but things are good. And, you, yes, we did just leave our headquarters into a much smaller space, but, but things are good. And, and, you know, we'd all sit there and kind of nod our heads and then go out and say, well, that was bullshit, right? That was, I mean, but we knew that that, that guy had to get up and say that. Yeah. He, you know, or, or this woman had to get up and say that and rally the troops but at the same time, and we had to kind of nod our heads, but then we kind of all would go like, you know, kind of like sit in our office and talk about how grim it was. I had just never been in a place yet where there was no cynicism. It was, it was amazing to me. It really was. It was very culty. It was yeah. very much like when you – I read Lawrence Wright's book about uh, Scientology just as I was starting this job. And it, it was a little bit like that. And you realize there's people inside Scientology who really – don't understand why people criticize it. Like, why do you hate Scientology? We're so great. We do such good things for people. So, um, yeah, it was it was amazing in that regard. Really amazing. And do you think the experience would have been different had the company been doing incredibly well? So well, you, they were doing well. I mean, they were growing really fast, and then they went public, and and the stock has gone way up. You know, um, they've never made any money, but you know, in in a way, they were doing well. So that's that's the other thing. It was it was it, it put the you know it made me think maybe I'm crazy because whatever they're doing seems to be working, right? So they weren't, they weren't uh, going out of business, right? Uh, and they, were almost, they almost ran out of money. I mean, they were burning through money really, really badly, and they went public having borrowed money to keep the lights on. Like, they came as close as you can get to, like, running out of money. But they managed to pull it off, and they raised a bunch of money in an IPO, and, and they're, you know, 
uh, still going. So, yeah, that's, that's the one big uh, caveat. It makes me wonder if maybe I'm just a dinosaur and I'm stuck in the 20th century. Like, I'm the only one who thinks maybe everybody now brings a teddy bear to work and that is the way to go. And I'm just the old guy who thinks bringing a teddy bear is stupid, you know? It's another thing I wrestle with in the book. It's like, am I out of step? Have I, you know, just lost it? You know, which is, I think what they would say, yes, that you're... you're um, and, and I guess it combines with, you, you, I saw a quote from Marissa Mayer a couple of weeks ago saying, the reason why Google's a success is we worked 130 hours a week. And, you know, there's oh, been yeah. quotes by other tech sort of heroes, really, saying that, you know, younger people are better than older people. Yeah. So it, it must combine to, it, it does add to that sense that diversity doesn't necessarily feel like what they're after. No, I don't think so at all. They, they put out these reports every year with these statistics, but I think it's just... And every year the headline is always like, this year's diversity report shows little progress. Um, but, yeah, no, I think I think the, the, uh, the VCs especially are very... Would love it if if, uh, if all of you young 23-year-olds would come in here and work 130 hours a week for us. That would be great. Please do that, right? You know, and there's a reason for that. And they get rich. Maybe, there, maybe there's something to that. I mean, I'm, I'm not sure if Marissa... Well, I wouldn't argue with her. I mean, she she knows what what made Google great. But um, it's just hard to see that accommodating a family, or hard to see it accommodating living remotely, where you've got to travel home. Right. I mean that that is the and and, and I've heard people say that you know they sort of. Uh, Women who can't get hired because they say, well, you know. I mean, in, in, it's funny. We look back in the, on the old days of, like, the Mad Men era when women couldn't get hired because they're like, well, you might get pregnant or if you get married. Or we won't hire married women, you know. And, and we sort of scoff at that as being an old-fashioned way. But it, it happens today where, where women are kind of told, like, you know, if you have a kid, you know, don't come back. Or, or if you're pregnant, you get fired. Or, or women don't get jobs because they're afraid they're going to want to have kids, right? And, and um, I think that kind of... A retrograde thinking still still applies in Silicon Valley, um, and yeah, there is a, a sense of I, I had someone tell me about HubSpot where I worked in the sales department. They, they were on monthly quotas instead of quarterly, and it was a really grueling environment. It was just very hard to make your number every quarter. And a woman said to me, "That's why look look around. There's no one here that has kids. There's no, you can't first of all nobody can survive this very long. You do it for a few years and you're burnt out. But you know you can't have a family and do this job uh, at the same time. Um, yeah, I think that is." That is kind of a, an ethos that, that I'm not sure if that's sustainable, right? But maybe it is. Maybe you can just every couple of years hire a new crop of young people right out of college. And I don't know what happens to the 40-year-olds and older, but that since my book came out, I get email every day from people who either have aged out or are worried about it. And starting at like 30, 32, right. worried about being too old to work in Silicon Valley, you know? Yeah, it's a it's a very crazy situation. Which is remarkable, I think, if you compare it to medical profession or the legal profession, where actually you're just getting into the prime of your career in, in sort of those ages. Yeah, and it, which I think is part of what puts the lie to this idea. Part of part of what the argument for young people in tech is that old you know people who are for you just don't get it, and it moves so fast, and it changes so much, and it's so challenging that you just need this special young brain with our our uh, digital native DNA. And but for example, my sister in law is a surgeon. At Stanford, and she's early 40, but really didn't begin her career because there's so much training. She's a colorectal surgeon, so she had to do specialized fellowships and trainings. So it was like her late 30s, really, before she began really practicing. I mean, she operates very complicated robotic surgery devices and um, that require constant learning. And she does the work she does is both physically and intellectually very, very rigorous work and, uh, and, and dynamic because it continues, the science continues to evolve. 
I mean, nobody says to her, oh, geez, I don't know, 43, you know, uh, clock's ticking, man. You know, really, we got to give this job to a 23-year-old because um, you just don't have the intellectual thing. So, yeah, in most fields, I think it's it's ridiculous to think that people over 40 can't do it. But, yeah, tech, I think that's a I think that's a fake argument. It's just um, it's cheap labor. Part yeah. of it is, is you can hire young people and work them really hard, and they don't have any life outside of this place. So um, they don't have any expectations of, of, of having any time off, yeah. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. So that was Dan Lyons. That was enjoyable, wasn't it, Dara? Uh, yeah, it was very, very funny. That book is a extraordinary read, partly because, you know, normally when you read something like that, someone would, as, as we said there, would hide the company and would anonymise it. And actually, he names all the people at the very back of the book, the people who anonymise in the process. But it's just so brutally honest. One of the things that I found really compelling was the fact that he felt twice as old as the average person. So on the subject of diversity, so yeah. w- worth saying, so your name, Dara, is, it, is that Irish? Uh, you know, for well, it isn't. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I am, I was born in Iran, pre-revolution. Okay. okay. In the 70s, yeah. So I'm a, I'm a full-blooded Iranian, both my parents are Iranian. Okay, so you, what, you came to Britain where in the... 1980. So I lived in London. Um, I've heard of it. I've, I've, <laughs> I lived in the town called London uh, in 1980 for six months before moving to Buckinghamshire. Okay, so what, what was it like as an Iranian boy growing up in Bucks? It's funny um, because I've thought about this a lot post-Brexit, funny enough, because I moved to um, uh, Marlow in Buckinghamshire when I was f- five, uh, and as I say, I'd been in the UK six or seven months. When I arrived in the UK, I couldn't speak in any English, um, so I just watched a lot of TV, and my parents spoke to me only in English to try to teach me. So when we joined, when I joined my new school in Marlow, my parents were a bit worried that I'd be behind. So they saw the headmaster, and the headmaster um, he said, "Look, if he needs lessons or he needs tuition, or if we can help him in any way, 
let us know. Um, and he went, right, we're all over it, we'll check it. And then a week later, my headmaster, the headmaster called my parents back and said, look, Mr. and Mrs. Nasser, you've got nothing to worry about. His English is amongst the best in the class, because I, I think because I'd been to school in London for a little while. And they were relieved, and, you know. And whilst they were leaving, the headmaster kind of gave a little chuckle and said, look, don't worry, we've got experience of working with foreign children, we have another foreign boy. And my mother said, all right, where's he from? And the headmaster said, Wales. So uh, that's a true story. But I think that was funny. But what that makes it sound like is that I could have been in for a rough ride. However, the one thing I'd say is I was celebrated for being different. So, and I remember this very fondly. Um, and my parents talk about it. They'd come to sports day. And because I was the only person, probably not from Buckinghamshire, let alone another country or Wales or whatever, um, when I was in sports day, everyone would cheer for me. And the Welsh lad? Um, I can't remember. He's rubbish. I think, uh, you know, who cares? Stop focusing on him. You know, so uh, I can't remember the Welsh lad. But that was really, re- I always made to feel so welcome. And actually, that's what saddened me in the Brexit thing. And I didn't really think about it until after the vote. You know, the press have reported on Twitter of some of the people post-Brexit causing, you know, having a go at people, calling out their nationality, or their or- or, you know, their o- origins and telling them to go home. And you know what? What saddened me is that's exactly the opposite of what I felt. I felt really welcome. And I wasn't in London. I was in a town where there was no one of my, you know, background. So, I mean, let's go on, because the, the theme of Dan Lyon's piece really is about, I guess, a couple of things. It's about diversity in the workplace. Yeah. And, and then... <coughs> And then he talks a bit about culture, and I think the the focus he talks, I mean, it's all about culture, but he he talks about humour in the workplace, and he's actually very complimentary about Britain and Mm. humour. Do you think Britain is uniquely humorous? You've worked in an international company. Do British people have more of a focus on humour than other countries, do you think? I I, I don't know if I can give a purely objective view. I would say yes. I mean, the companies I have, everyone's been... The greatest, and I've said this uh, a lot of time, the thing that drives me to come to work is that every day I come in and have fun. However difficult the job might be, how stressful it might be, how tough times are, and in the past I've gone through, you know, various companies, tough times, um, and you also have good times, but however, t- it's the fun element that really drives me anyway. And I have to say, from day one, I remember when I was in TV, it was like a playground. I mean, it was just so much fun. You were learning all the time. You had to work really hard. If you, they made it very clear. You probably don't actually have to work very hard, but if you want to get along, you do. So you weren't going to get sacked, probably, but if you wanted to advance, you had to work hard. But you are encouraged to have fun, and um, you are encouraged to learn and have fun with learning. And actually, that's the thing. I've loved at Twitter. It's been so much fun. And it is so much fun like every day, you know. So, so I've got a, broadly, I've got a theory about uh, humour at work, and I, I think it largely comes down to national perception. Right. So, I think broadly that countries who think whose inhabitants think truly they are the best people in the world tend to laugh less right. than the people who there's been a dawning realisation through their formative years, I'm not in the best country in the world. So specifically, I think if you grow up in Britain and you live in Britain, while we might have a sense of pride about some things and we like our music and we think, Mm. even though the BBC only makes about eight good shows a year, we think the BBC is good, we broadly know we're not the best country Mm. in the world. And so consequently, it brings us like a self-deprecating warmth to it. We laugh, our, our weather's rubbish, our 
Sports. It, sports rubbish. We, like, we celebrate defeats. Yeah. And, and so consequently, it brings the humour. We just laugh at everything. We're self-deprecating. I, I think We've it does. We've already got failure baked into our expectations. I think it does. I do have to say I think it differs from profession to profession. On the subject of diversity there, he talks about diversity and some of the horrors there. And I think he's candid to say, you know, he scanned his eyes across the floor and it was loads of white kids in their 20s. And there's a couple of ways that that ends up happening that we say, you know, culture fit, would I have a beer with this, some, this person? And also, does this person feel, we, we've both worked in previous jobs, where there's, there's almost a, a adjective used, does this person feel like Employee. they would fit in this mm. big company? Mm. And um, and actually, that's, that's about trying to get someone who looks the same. I used to work somewhere, I'll give you this example, I used to work somewhere back in the past, uh, a while ago now, where the woman who ran recruitment did what she saw as a collective good. She used to go through all the CVs, all the resumes that came in, and she would filter out, thankfully, very good service she was providing, she'd filter out all the names that were hard to pronounce. Amazing. A gentleman who might have (laughs) a difficult-to-pronounce African name sadly wouldn't make the cut because... Colleagues in Preston might struggle to pronounce right. it. Right. I mean, I don't think that would be referred to as optimal. <laughs> I mean, if I, if I, in my opinion, anyway. Not best practice. That no, way. definitely not best practice. No, I think um, the other thing about the everyone having the same, being young and white or whatever, like the gen, uh, like Dan said, I think another thing that's come to light: tech company use referrals as their main way of recruitment, which is actually very, makes sense, right? Because why hire an agent at a lot of money to do this? And you need people in. A lot of tech companies used to hire people quickly. So if you know someone, Bruce, why don't you just get them in? Actually, there's a lot of work being done is typically you hang around with people who are like you. So you're likely to refer people who are like you, which means you're not going to get many diverse people. And I think that probably rings true. I don't think there's any bad intentions it's just a you know it's a byproduct of having that process i think what are companies doing to improve diversity and improve like hiring a a broadly mixed team what's been proven to work is if you set yourself targets so we need to employ x percent of certain people by a certain date now for a lot of people that sounds quite contrived but it's a target and apparently all the work done companies that have targets versus companies that do not achieve those targets or much closer than those that do not and one of the things that I heard a big media company do is they looked at they had a lot of jobs open and they looked at a lot of CVs and they were profiling a certain way and they're saying we tell you what go out source some more CVs and try to increase people from different backgrounds different gender etc etc then let's look at the CVs again and start the interview. Now, if you end up choosing the best candidate and they're from the original bunch, that's totally fine. But at least you've tried to diversify the recruitment process. Because to your point, with your extreme example, you were never going to interview anyone with a name you couldn't pronounce. Mm. Whereas this is like, well, we're beyond that, and then you employ the best person. Their diversity percentage has shot up or beaten their targets over the course of you know five or six years. Right, it's materially changing the system. And it, I suppose it's the mindset, isn't it? With the, the, the recruitment team or the sources or call them what, it, what you will, go out, find you know 
a higher percentage of women, a higher percentage of, you can't go young or old, but people with different ethnic backgrounds, bring them in for interview or at least assess their suitability. And if they get into an interview, they certainly stand a higher chance of getting a job if they're not even in the interview. So it's really helped them. And I think that's one way. I think um, another way that people do stuff is via internships. You know, in the apprentice levy and stuff that's going on right now in the UK. Now, university education, we were very lucky in our years that university was essentially free. You just had to pay living costs. Now people leave university with, what, £40,000 debt? So what they're finding is very clever children, when I say clever children, 18-year-olds leaving school, are thinking, I don't want £40,000 debt. I'm just going to get a job straight away. Now, the difficulty is a lot of the better jobs you need a university education. Um, So with the apprentice levy and the internships they are allowing a way in for these people who might have less, you know, uh, fewer qualifications. Now, you could argue, and I'm, I'm not making a wild stab in the dark, that a lot of these people who decide not to go to university probably come from slightly poorer backgrounds or lower socioeconomic, you know, backgrounds. So I think that that's another way, I think, to diversify at entry level. When it comes to diversity, is it all about changing laws or changing rules or is it about everyone making personal contributions? I think it's more of a behaviour thing, if I'm honest, or the personal... We were very lucky to do an unconscious bias training thing, actually, at Twitter. So what does that mean? So conscious bias, um, for clarity, is when you say, I'm not going to employ a woman because she's probably going to get pregnant and cost me money. That's conscious bias. Unconscious bias is when you naturally choose the man without really thinking about it because you think so for example the example uh, sorry the example they gave is if you have a male candidate and a female candidate for a police person um, and there are you know they have exactly the same background exactly the same experience there was a massive majority of people chose the man over the woman they didn't chose the man because he was a man they didn't chose the man because he wouldn't get pregnant they just chose the man. And that's the unconscious bias. You're doing it without knowing you're doing it, but there's still a factor in there. So we had this training. And one of the things that came out, I think it was from Harvard or Yale, I can't remember, was that the companies with more diverse background almost always not just had a better culture, like internal happiness scores, but performance. One of the weird things about European law currently is you're not allowed to monitor the race the ethnicity of employees. Right. But if globally a company does a report on their diversity, you're not allowed to monitor that in Europe. Don't worry, the Home Secretary is going to change that. (laughs) She's going to monitor everything. (laughs) But uh, you're not allowed to monitor it. So you've got this weird thing where diversity is, certainly in Britain, if not in mainland mainland Europe, more high profile than ever. Mm. But you can't even say whether you're doing a good job of it. Yeah, I mean, that's not good, is it? I didn't know that, to be honest with you. Because Dan Lyons, just to finish on Dan, he sort of paints a pretty pessimistic vision of work, doesn't he? Sort of, Or, you know, it's, it's a dystopian view of the world. And that you combine that with the fact that most people's jobs now is a lot of email and, and sort of managing stress to some extent. I know we can always look at our old man's job and look at our dad's job and think he had it easy. Mm. And then you extrapolate that forward and you think, Christ, what's work going to be like in 20 years? Yeah. I think the Dan's bit I really like is that he was a journalist. I think journalists actually have quite a cynical view of the world. But actually, it makes me laugh. Yeah. You know, but I love that, it. I think they need to, don't they? Yeah, they, they need have to, to. They have to run everything through a truth filter. That's exactly that. And I think that you have to run everything through a truth filter. I get it. But I think I think some of that no company's fun 
thing comes from his natural cynicism, I think. I think. Or his nurtured cynicism from however many years of journalism, I think. So I don't know. I, th- I don't think, you know, I think there's some great companies to work for. There's some great people having great fun. I mean, you, I don't, I don't think things are fundamentally different. I think probably the world's faster moving. So it might seem accelerated, but... Good, and, and this is the sort of stage, uh, so I've loved having you on. This is the stage I normally say to people, so, you know, what do you do, what's your job? What, well, I know what you do, so uh, <laughs> you see anything good on telly? Oh, yeah, so um, I like Modern Family, that's fun. I, I, very, I find it difficult to watch TV without a phone, so if I don't have, I find it hard to concentrate. I on think things. it's ruining telly, though, isn't it? Mm. That's why I do knitting. I mean, you're really bad at watching anything, though, to be fair. The affair's good, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it's good. Podcasts I listen to. You know what? That's become that's where my um, comedy massive because I commute. The Romesh one is obviously amazing. Saved my life. Adam Buxton podcast so funny. Right. The comedians, comedians. I love the Mike Skinner and Merkage Day. Yeah, you said audiobooks as well. Yeah, amazing. So we've listened to the Alan Partridge audiobooks. Incredible. Good. Thank you for for thank you for staying after work and chatting to me. It's absolutely fun. Uh, it's been absolutely amazing. Thank you so much. I've enjoyed meeting you on the sixth floor meeting rooms. <laughs> Thank uh, you. Next time I'm on Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat, we've got the Professor of Economics, Professor Richard Layard. Uh, do hope you'll join for that one. Please subscribe. Tweet me your feedback. See you next time. Good. It was quite serious, wasn't it? You can just a few laughs in yeah, there. Yeah, yeah. Oh, you can't just you can't just come and fuck about. <laughs>